Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Lord, as we enter into this space and time gathered around your holy word, we are humbled, honored, in fact, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in the gift of the Holy Scriptures. Lord, we, we pray that you would, uh, that you would uh, be maximized in our presence and that anything that I've prepared uh, or anything of me would be minimized and set aside because it's all for your glory. Lord, open our eyes that we would see, our ears that we would hear. Open our minds that we come to know and understand your word and indeed your will. Open our hearts that we would feel your power. And in response, I ask that you would open our hands, that we would offer grace to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was thinking about what these gatherings are like, these Christmas gatherings that uh, so many of us have already been to and uh, are planning to be uh, at over the course of the next couple of days. And, and I want you to think about the most uh, regular storyteller in your family. Who's the one that, that you know is going to fill the air telling story after story? Sometimes it'll be someone with some years, and they'll be recalling back uh, into history. And, and it's always one of those folks that tells the same story over and over again, right? Like, like uh, my, my dad, Paul Paul, he tells stories uh, all of the time. And uh, what's always interesting for me to watch is my kids' reactions to his retelling of the same story. Uh, Aiden and I were, were out uh, heading to a football game with, my, with Paul Paul just a couple of weeks ago, and, and he was telling the story and telling the story about different family members' reactions to a certain circumstance and situation, and I knew that he had told me the story before, but I did not recall that he had told Aiden the story before. Not only had he told Aiden the story before, he told Aiden the story before multiple times, and he had done so in my presence. And so I react to the story in a certain way as though it's rhythm and rote, and and then Paul Paul reacts to my reaction in a certain way. And then Aiden says, y'all are so predictable. You did the same exact thing the last two times that Paul Paul told the story. Sometimes stories can begin to take on a life of their own. When we hear the same thing over and over again, we tell it in the same way and rehearse it in a certain rhythm and in so doing, I wonder if we begin to fail to honestly articulate what the truth of the matter was. As a preacher, I can relate to this. There are certain stories that I have told in such a way to fit into a certain context, and then I have retold them in the same way over and over again. And if I actually sit down and grind in my mind to consider what was actually happening in that moment, maybe I slightly embellished certain elements of it, told it in such a way that wasn't quite accurate and the, the, the truth of the matter is, when it comes to this story, 
the Luke 2 Jesus born in a manger story. We have told it over and over again. We, we come on Christmas Eve expecting, assuming that the story is going to be told again, that we're going to hear it again afresh, anew. And yet we hope that we hear the same echo that we've heard from year to year to year all throughout our life's journey. But there are certain elements of the Christmas story that are not told accurately. Now, I understand that as soon as I said that, some of y'all thought, oh, Pastor Jason is going to ruin my Christmas. He's going he's to undo something that I love about the story. And, and that's not my intent. I'm not going to, to step on too many toes. Uh, but, but I do want to, to make sure that, that we get to the primary focus of what is at the heart of the message that Luke 2 proclaims about Jesus' birth. And there are a few elements that we impose upon the text that are not accurate, that are not from the story. The first, we impose upon this Luke, story, Luke 2 story that at the core, there is a, uh, a significant amount of shame that is being dealt with. That this is a story of rejection and shame, disgrace for Joseph and Mary. And, and that's retold in the way in which it's rehearsed all across uh, uh, the, the, the Mexican uh, tradition of La Posada. La Posada has a tradition where in Mexico for nine days, Mary and Joseph will journey to house after house being rejected one after another after another. And, and on and on, Mary and Joseph has, have this shame put upon them. I imagine it like, like that game Duck, Duck, Goose when we were kids. Do you remember when you played Duck, Duck, Goose? And when you were really young, it was just harmless, right? Like you, you got tagged and then you were it and you had to do it. But then somewhere along the way, when you were a little bit older, we had to impose shame and disgrace upon getting caught. I don't know if that was just me and my friends. Maybe it was you as well. But after you got caught, you then went to the middle and everybody said, mush, mush, mush. Shame on you for being slow, Right? Okay, that was, okay, there's like 25% that had really awful friends. And then the other 75% are wondering what was wrong with Jason's upbringing. But that was, that was like this, this, this ritualistic shame imposed upon the one who was caught. And here we, we rehearse in our minds and rehearse in the tradition of the Luke 2 story this idea that Mary and Joseph went to one house, knock, 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 get out of here. Another house, knock, 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 no room for you, specifically you. And then there's that mean, old, nasty innkeeper that, that's probably 6'3 and a little bit burly and says, get out, no room for you. You got to go in the stable. You got to go to the outskirts of town. Shame, shame, shame. And it's understandable why we, why we centralize Mary and Joseph's shame and disgrace as a part of this, uh, of this retelling in our minds. After all, uh, there are elements of that woven into the broader Christmas story. We hear it in uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 uh, through 20. And this is Joseph's reaction after uh, the angel tells Joseph that he is going to, uh, to have 
his wife bear the Son of God. Here's what it says, Matthew 1.18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce, divorce her quietly. This, this idea that they're engaged, and now that she is pregnant, that there is shame that will come upon her, that there is shame that will come upon him, that they will be living in disgrace. It is a part of the Christmas story, but that is not there for us in Luke 2. It's understandable why we would impose it. Also, in, in Luke chapter 1, we also hear of uh, chapter 30, verse 39 and 40, we hear uh, what ha- happens after Mary receives the word from the angel that she was going to bear this son, the, the Messiah. And in verse 39, it re- uh, Mary's response is, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah, Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. So she hears that she's going to bear uh, the Son of God, that she's going to bear the Messiah, uh, and and she offers this this word, have it be with me according to your word. And yet she then gets up and leaves immediately. She travels far away, and, and we understand why, because she is having to grapple with this immense uh, truth that her life will never be the same, and that the outside world would commonly not believe or understand what was taking place in her and through her. She has been dealing with shame. But that's not in this Luke 2 passage. So where do we get this La Posada vision, this there's no room in the inn? In Luke chapter 2, verse 7, in the New King James Version and in the Old King James Version, it reads this. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That's that's what we have grown up hearing, but there was no room for them in the inn. But that word inn uh, is is not uh, as we have received it historically. That word inn in the Greek originally in the Gospel of Luke is this word kataluma. Say it with me, kataluma. No, you're all like theologians and scholars. It's fantastic. Well done. Kataluma in Luke 2 literally means guest room, guest chamber, or upper room. Kataluma does not mean inn, does not mean commercial inn. It actually means a guest room in a home. So there being no room, no room in the guest room has a totally different frame of reference for us than there's no room in the inn. There are a whole host of reasons why we know that this was not a corporate inn. I'm not going to bother you with all of them, but I will just say that uh, Bethlehem in that time was a small town. Most scholars believe about a thousand in population at the time. It was close enough to Jerusalem where if you were having, if you were going to stay in a corporate inn setting, then you would have been staying in Jerusalem, not in Bethlehem. And, and, 
uh, as we walk through this, this detail of what it means to have no room in the kataluma, uh, we wonder or might ask ourselves, is there a difference in the Greek and is there a difference for Luke between a kataluma and a corporate inn? And the answer is yes. There's another word for a corporate inn, pandokion. Say it with me, pandokion. Pandokion. All right, so we're doing great. Pandokion means literally a traveler's lodge or an inn. And we begin to ask ourselves, well, did Luke know the difference? Was he, uh, was he acquainted with the distinction between the two words, that one means guest room and one means inn? And the answer is yes. In Luke chapter 10, we have the story of the Good Samaritan, and, and, and Luke is, is writing and recording what it means uh, to, to, to show mercy and what it means to follow after God's desire for the way in which we relate to one another. And so in Luke chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, we hear, uh, we hear Luke use the word pandokion, Luke chapter 10, verses 33 and following, but a Samaritan... As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him and went, and went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil uh, and, on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, a pandokion, and took care of him. So Luke knew the word pandokion, knew what a corporate inn was, a place where someone rented out multiple rooms, and that was their livelihood. But is there another reference to Cataluma that helps us understand that Luke used these things interchangeably or used them accurately and with discretion? Well, in Luke chapter 22, verse 11 and, uh, and 12, we hear... Uh, Luke used again the word kataluma. And say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Or you might have heard it as the upper room, as this is where he's going to celebrate communion with his disciples. Where is the kataluma, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. So Luke the writer of Luke, we know, is a doctor. He is into the details, and he is precise with his words as a doctor should be, right? We want a doctor who's precise. We don't want a doctor who is loose with the truth and with the words. And so whenever we hear Luke have precision and distinction between these two words, kataluma and pandokion, we are to understand that there is something significant that is taking place here. We have this house that Mary and Joseph arrive at, and there is no room for them in the upper room or the guest room and so instead, they go to the stable. So there's, a, there's all sorts of archaeology that's been done all across Israel, but particularly in Bethlehem. And we have evidence of what first century homes looked like in Bethlehem. Uh, we have floor plans of what the designs were. And so whenever we, uh, whenever we look at a floor plan, do we have that to pull up? We could see that there, there are different elements 
available to us of what a cataluma would look like. So this is a common person's home in the first century, uh, especially uh, in the area of the Judean hillside uh, around Bethlehem. And you have a main living area, and then you have the upper room that typically didn't have the actual stairs. Most of the time it had a ladder. So imagine being nine months pregnant and maybe trying to go to, to stay in the Cataluma. No, that's, you're not climbing up a ladder, uh, nine months pregnant. Testimony? Yes? Okay. So, uh, and you have the main area that, uh, that would double as a, a living area during the day and sleeping arrangements at night. And so you would roll up your mats and put them against the wall at night uh, uh, at, during the day, and then you roll them out and sleep on them at night. And then you have this odd place here, the stable inside the house. The stable inside, not, not, not this separate barn far off on the outskirts of town where, where with ridicule and shame, Mary and Joseph went out in a depressed fashion, but instead it's a place that, 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 uh, that during the winter time allowed the animals to come inside. So not only would they not be stolen or harmed by wild animals, but also their body heat provided warmth for the rest of the house so that everybody in the home could could be blessed by the animal's presence. And then uh, there would be some stairs to that. They would be blocked off so the animals would be in this lower level because the Judean hillside was multi-tiered homes. And then they would be separated from the rest of the family. So whenever we have this understanding of Mary and Joseph coming to the door, knocking on the door, uh, it's not an inn. And it's not an innkeeper. And there's no shame in the fact that there is no room for them in the guest room. Because that just means that the guest room was already occupied. Someone else from the family came into town for the census just as Mary and Joseph did. And so whenever the, the, the host, the family member, identifies that there's no room in the upper room in the Cataluma the host then makes preparation in the stable in their main living area to welcome them in. This is not a scene of shame. This is not a scene of disgrace. This is a scene of hospitality that's being offered and received by Mary and Joseph with Joseph's family. After all, Joseph is there for the census because he is from there. He's also there for the census with a name that means something because Luke tells us that he is of the house and line of David. And if he's of the house and line of David and he rolls up on a family member's house, he is not going to be rejected with a nine-month pregnant wife. Rather, he is going to be received in, and they are going to make room for the two of them. So that's number one, the element of the story that through tradition and through the course of years, we've mm, fudged. Sure, there are elements of shame and disgrace in, uh, in uh, other portions of the story, but here in Luke 2, there is no evidence of that. The second uh, element of the story that it seems we should 
focus in on a little bit more is we always identify that this stable where Jesus is born is a place where there were animals all around. And we, we set up our nativity scenes like it. How many of you have nativity scenes at home? Uh, you know, you have, maybe you have multiple nativity scenes. There are collectors of nativity scenes. God bless you. Um, and, uh, and in almost every nativity scene, there is some animal. Now, the sheep might be there when the shepherds come, but it says nothing about that. But there are also often goats. Uh, there are also often ox. Uh, there's also often uh, a cow. And, and we, we set the scenes up as though in this place where Jesus was born, there were animals everywhere. And I want to ask you women... Have you ever thought about that scene and wondered what you would think about giving birth in a barn with animals everywhere? That picture that we paint is, in fact, disgusting. <laughs> it's gross. I mean, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And I know we're spoiled with our hospitals today. But imagine we didn't have the hospitals. What does it look like to give birth? There's a room where there's preparation made. There is cleanliness. There is, there is attention to detail, especially in a culture where 50% of the women that give birth died. They're not going to have Mary give birth with animals everywhere. That's not happening. That's not a part of the scene or the culture. Whenever we hear that Mary gave birth in a stable, we know that the animals were not there. They, the, the shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night. It wasn't the time of year when the animals would have been in the stable giving heat to the home. Instead, the shepherds were protecting them, and Mary and Joseph had a place prepared for them. But I understand the ritual, and I understand the way in which we envision this. Last Sunday, Little Oaks uh, Preschool, which is, which, which is our partner here at Covenant, they had students that came in and sang a song. Uh, it, it was awesome, and it stuck in my head for uh, 24 hours. I'm not going to sing the whole song, but the song was, Oh, What a Special Night. Have any of you uh, been blessed with that song? Oh, what a special night. And then it, it, it goes like, this is what they sang. Ba, 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 ba. Thank you, God, for baby Jesus. Right, like that. And, and there's, a, there's like a goat song that I can't get right in my head. Hee, haw, hee, hee, haw, haw. But so, you, so you, have, you have like kids singing songs about animals being present at the birth of Jesus. And we have nativity scenes where that is there. And we create this scene. And I, I believe that there's, that there's a reason for it. It echoes a, a, a truth for each of us. This truth that Jesus was born in a humble way. In humble circumstances. But we don't have to have a disgusting circumstance in order to have a humble circumstance. And what we are to read into this message is that Jesus had a humble beginning. 
After all, the shepherds, the shepherds received word from the angels testifying to who Jesus was for them and for the world. And then they go and they seek out Jesus. They find Jesus lying in a manger with Mary and Joseph, mom and dad. And here in verse 16 of chapter 2, we read that they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. If the shepherds would have come across baby Jesus, the one who was the savior of the world, the one who was the Messiah who had been prophesied, who they had been waiting on, if they would have come across baby Jesus and he was being mistreated and he was in a circumstance that was unsafe, they would not have just gone about their merry way. They would have corrected it. But instead, we are to see that this is a humble beginning where there is a common birth to common parents in a common way so that the most uncommon thing this world has ever known could take place. That is at the heart of this message. So often you and I, people all around the world, just have a difficult time fathoming how God could care so much about me. Could God care so much about me? That Jesus was for me. That God was for me in Jesus. That he took on our common lives and walked and lived amongst us so that every single person on earth knew that he was for them. Imagine if Jesus would have been born in an extraordinary way in a palace to a king and, and all, all the commoners, including us through the generations, would have, would have wondered, could this king actually relate to us? But instead, this king was born amongst us to be with us. And in that testimony, we can understand that Jesus is for the world, not for a portion of the world. Not for some exclusive group, but rather Jesus is breaking down every dividing wall and barrier that's amongst us. And he says, I am here for you. That's what this Luke 2 story is all about. We hear that Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes just as every other Israelite child would have been. He was laid in a manger as a testimony and witness so that the shepherds in the world might know who he was. And as that witness rang out from the shepherds' voices, we hear it yet today. And their rejoicing because, becomes our rejoicing and our rejoicing testifies to the world that Jesus is born. Jesus is born for you. Jesus is born 
for me. Jesus is born for all the world, and so we rejoice in this uncommon gift of grace. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the hospitality and welcome that Mary and Joseph received and that room was made and that, uh, and that you came for us and you did so in a way that could remind us that you are for each and every one of us. You came to, to meet with us and to be with us and so we celebrate what you've done in your son, Jesus Christ. God with us, Emmanuel. We pray, O oh God, that you would connect with us anew this day. If any of us have any lingering doubts or wondering if you care enough for us, Lord, I pray that you would break down that barrier, that you would set it aside and remind us afresh that you love us so much that you sent your son for us. And we celebrate that this day, this Christmas Eve. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.